This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from John Payne and Harry Reeder as they talk about seven biblical distinctives of Christ's church. Both men are teaching elders in the PCA, and this was originally a seminar delivered at the 2021 General Assembly in St. Louis. Let's listen as John Payne and Harry Reeder discuss the biblical distinctives of Christ Church. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote that, uh, encouraged us, uh, that Every time you read a new book, in between the next new book you read, you should read an old book, a book that was written some, some time ago. Uh, now, one of those books, if you've never read it, uh, ought to be Christianity and Liberalism by J. Gresham Machen. And uh, this book, uh, many of you will know, many of you will read it. If you've not read it, I do want to encourage you, uh, in the strongest terms, uh, to read that book uh, and to be encouraged by it and to... Uh, recognize uh, some things that Machen is saying in his day apply certainly to our own, but there's a slight twist on it. And it's a twist that, that made us uh, wonder if we've given a little bit of false advertising uh, to this uh, seminar, and that is we do want to talk to you a bit about the progressive movement and how it has made its way into the church. And uh, Harry is going to focus on that aspect. I'm going to focus this morning on uh, seven biblical distinctives of Christ Church. Now, of course, we don't have a whole lot of time, and we're sharing this time together. Uh, but what I want to do is to, uh, to, to basically make the statement that if, if, if any book needs to be written today, it needs to be Christianity and progressivism. Christianity and progressivism. And uh, we, as uh, the Gospel Reformation Network, have found ourselves not fighting against people or brothers in our denomination, uh, and we don't even talk like that. We have found ourselves fighting against ideas and ideologies that we have seen not only creeping into uh, our, our own denomination, but, but creeping into denominations all over. If you've paid any attention to the things going on in other denominations, you'll see that they are uh, struggling with some of the same struggles that we have. And, and so our, our problems aren't really unique, and progressivism is having a powerful effect uh, on our churches, uh, uh, of course, nationally, but also worldwide. And, uh, 
And so part of what I want to share as I, as I give the, the seven biblical distinctives of Christ Church, which are, uh, which are uh, the seven distinctives of the Gospel Reformation Network, uh, I want to help us to understand that the, the answer uh, to progressivism is it's, it's pretty straightforward. And I think that some of the ways that we have uh, uh, fashioned our uh, distinctives with the Gospel Reformation Network, and some of you may not even really know what the GRN is or, or what it is we've been trying to do. You may have heard some things that actually aren't true about what we're trying to do. This is actually what we're trying to do, uh, which is on our website under the About section. Uh, so if you're taking notes or you, or you just want to listen, just know that it's there on the About section. I want to uh, say a few things about these seven biblical distinctives, which come to us as couplets. Um, and then uh, say a few things about piety. Uh, I want to kind of lock in on uh, the, the one uh, distinctive that we like to put forward, which is an emphasis on pastoral piety. Uh, the first uh, distinctive of, of Christ's uh, church that we want to focus on is biblical fidelity and confessional integrity. Biblical fidelity and confessional integrity. This is an unyielding commitment to the inspiration, uh, inerrancy, authority, sufficiency, and efficacy of Scripture for faith and practice with a resolute adherence to the Westminster standards. And I think that part of the issue we're dealing with today is it's not inspiration, inerrancy, and authority. I think uh, we agree with that largely with those who we may disagree with on other things. I think uh, what we're seeing is a lack of uh, focus on and belief in the sufficiency and the efficacy of Scripture. That is, I think, where the battle is lying today. Do we really believe, do we, and I'm speaking to, to ministers and elders here specifically, do we really believe that the Bible is sufficient and efficacious to save and to sanctify the elect, those whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world, those who, John 6, he has given to his son that he would die for his bride. Uh, do we believe that the scriptures uh, and, uh, and then our confession, of course, as uh, the summary of our beliefs, do we believe that the scriptures are efficacious and sufficient uh, to do what God has promised to do. Uh, and I think that's a, a question that needs to be asked over and over again. And quite frankly, our methodologies will say a lot. The way we worship, the way our philosophy of ministry in our churches, they will communicate a lot about what we really believe about the sufficiency and the efficacy of Scripture. Of course, confessional integrity uh, is linked to that. It, uh, our, our standards are subordinate to the Scriptures but uh, we have a resolute adherence to them. We've been hearing a lot. It's interesting that uh, when David Strain got up to give his lecture at our conference, uh, he, his first word was, I think John gave me the most boring, uh, uneventful topic uh, here at the conference. Well, then he proceeded to give a wonderful lecture, and it has been the main narrative and conversation going on. <laughs> at this year's assembly and uh, online, lots of debate, and, and it's, it's, it's gotten us talking about our confession again. It's wonderful, isn't it? 
we're talking about our confession and how important it is for our ministries and what do we really believe about it in terms of the work of the presbytery. So uh, we, we want to, to, to put forward that biblical fidelity and confessional integrity are to be uh, important distinctions of the church. Uh, number two, gospel-driven and Christ-exalting ministry. Gospel-driven and Christ-exalting ministry. A sincere passion, uh, a sincere passion to proclaim the gospel of grace always with the aim of exalting Christ in the hearts, minds, and affections of God's people. So we not only want the gospel to drive our worship, to, dr to, be, to be at the center of our preaching and our Bible studies and, and, uh, and, and the focus of our churches, we want the aim of that to be a Christ-exalting uh, ministry in the hearts, minds, and affections of God's people. So, so it's not just... Uh, this declarative gospel that frees us from our sin and then sort of frees us to live in a way that is unbecoming of the Lord. But a gospel that, that is proclaimed, that we receive, and that causes our hearts to grow in love and affection for our, our Savior. I think Samuel Rutherford has been quoted a couple times this week already. The loveliness of Christ. Do, we, does our, do our ministries lead people to have a strong love and affection uh, for God and for his son, Jesus Christ. Thirdly, earnest prayer and expository preaching. Uh, a resolve to practice fervent prayer in the closet uh, uh, and from the pulpit, along with an unbending dedication to expository preaching that informs the mind, transforms the heart, and stirs uh, the affections. And so we want a recommitment to prayer. Uh, can I just say, if, if you do not have a dedicated prayer meeting or prayer meetings in your church, uh, you, you, need to, you need to repent, and you need to talk to your session about how you're going to start one. Uh, it is a shame that the, the prayer meeting is a kind of anachronism these days. shouldn't be. Uh, the prayer should be the engine of our churches. Amen? Uh, so earnest prayer from the closet... So we, we are committed to praying on our own, to beginning our days, crying out to the Lord, laying our burdens before him, asking him for his grace and strength, and, uh, and, and, and praying with our families and praying with our churches and doing that not only in public worship services substantially, which we should, there should be dedicated pastoral prayers that are somewhat lengthy and, and we see as a means of grace in the life of the worship of the church, but also prayer meetings where we dedicate time uh, to praying. And then that, that, of course, is coupled with expository preaching there, earnest prayer and expository preaching. Our preaching should be fueled by prayer. You know, Spurgeon walked up the steps, each step saying, I believe in the Holy Spirit, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And, and, and knowing that the, the, the preaching that we carry out will will be fruitless uh, apart from the work of the Spirit. We need to be those who pray and are committed to expository preaching, uh, exegetical preaching. In 1 Timothy uh, chapter uh, 4, we have some of the, the last words that Paul gives uh, to Timothy and, and to the church. And he writes, I charge you in the presence of God, and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. That is, when you feel like it and when you don't. When people want to listen to you and when they don't want to listen to you. In season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. I don't know about you, but uh, I have noticed in the past two to three uh, 
four or five years that with the kind of rise of the triumph of the therapeutic mindset, the expressive individualism we're seeing today, it's people are easily offended, right? You just cancel people if you don't like what they're saying or what they're doing. Um, you know, I, I don't care what you say, sir, but just don't say anything that offends me. And it's interesting that when we see Paul's exhortation to Timothy, <laughs> he says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. This is to be a part of the very nature of the preaching of the word of God, not in a, an unnecessarily offensive way. In fact, he says there, with complete patience and teaching. But these things are a reality and they're a part of our preaching. And so we want to preach the whole counsel of God. We want the diet of our preaching to be preaching through books of the Bible and taking seriously uh, the word of God and not replacing it with sociology and psychology and uh, cultural ideologies. We want our preaching to be filled with the word of God and with Christ. Um, fourthly, intentional evangelism and personal discipleship. Uh, this is a purposeful commitment to bold evangelism coupled with a dedication to the old paths of serious, deliberate, faith-maturing discipleship. Uh, and so uh, this is basically saying we don't want to just do pre-evangelism all the time. We want to have intentional evangelism that's actually lovingly confrontational and, and, and calling people to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, Yes, we want to encourage friendship evangelism and to take time to get to know people and establish that. You don't always have that time, and so you uh, need to be a little more uh, quick with your confrontation and evangelism. But the, the evangelism must, at one point, get to the point of you need to repent and turn from your sin and, 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 and do it in such a way as to show the loveliness of Christ as, as the alternative to their life uh, uh, of, of, uh, of sin. Personal discipleship, of course, is related to that. Discipleship is not just getting converts. It's, it's a, a lifelong commitment to growing under the means of grace. It's deliberate. It's faith maturing. Uh, fifthly, godly leadership and Presbyterian polity. Uh, and I'm going to talk about this uh, for a few minutes after I get done working through these. Uh, godly leadership and Presbyterian polity. So a sincere devotion to personal piety among church leadership coupled with a strong adherence to biblical Presbyterianism. Uh, I'll, I'll talk more about that in just a few minutes. Sixthly, sixthly, reformed worship and vibrant community. Reformed worship and vibrant community. A joyful commitment to and humble confidence in the ordinary means of grace in Lord's Day worship, coupled with the nurture of loving Christian fellowship. Uh, now, isn't it amazing, uh, the, the, the fellowship, probably the fellowship is uh, never better than after a worship service where we've met with God, where we've heard the faithful preaching of the word of God, where we've been humbled in the dust and where we've received God's amazing grace and, and uh, we've sung his praises, we've come to the table, we've witnessed baptisms and then, and then the benediction happens and then uh, the service is over, what happens? We begin to fellowship together and encourage one another. And that's where vibrant fellowship comes. It doesn't come uh, by kind of manipulating uh, spaces in order to generate fellowship. Fellowship is best when it comes out of faithful worship, the faithful worship of God's people, worship according to scripture and, 
And so I would just uh, say that that really is where you're going to find your most vibrant community is when you are committed to the faithful uh, worship of, of the Lord. Finally, um, missional clarity and church multiplication. Uh, this is a fervent and undistracted commitment to make disciples of all nations through the preaching of the gospel and the planting and strengthening of biblical churches. Uh, while diaconal work is an important aspect of Christian mission, uh, it is not the main focus of Christian mission. Uh, Christian mission, as we see it, uh, clearly set forth in the Great Commission, uh, and also as we see it modeled by the apostles, is, is that whereby they are preaching the word of God faithfully, where they are making disciples through the teaching uh, and preaching of the word of God, where they are administering the sacraments, where they are involved in people's lives, and where they are planting churches and appointing elders. And so you have this focus over and over again. Uh, oftentimes people come to me and say, John, uh, you know, you talk about the mission of the church a lot. You, you give this, this uh, model, you, you, you give this one option. I say, I don't think it's one option. I, I think, I think um, that it's the only option. I don't think it's one way of doing mission. I think it's the only way of doing mission where men are sent out who are trained, ordained, gifted, and sent out uh, to preach the word of God faithfully and to uh, plant churches. Now, will diaconal mercy ministries be a part of that and have a, a wonderful relationship within that, that context? Yes, and we praise the Lord for that. But it's not the driving force. Uh, the driving force is the gospel and the means of grace uh, proclaimed. We can become so distracted by all the needs of the world that we forget about their greatest need, uh, which is uh, Christ himself. I do want to say uh, just a few things now about uh, pastoral piety. Um, I believe that what we're talking about this morning and what Harry's going to bring to us to have us consider uh, in terms of progressive Christianity and why it is such, such a threat, I want to say this, that I believe, first of all, that what I've just uh, fire-hosed you with a bit here, um, I understand that, and, and, and you'll see on our website all of those distinctives and, uh, and, and a little bit of a, a summary of those distinctives. But the reason why we want to cover those briefly is because we, we do believe that these things are the answer to the progressive push that we see within the wider church and that we, see, we are seeing evidence of even within our own uh, uh, denomination. And so uh, I want you to think about that, but I want you to think in particular, I just want to bring you some brief encouragement about pastoral piety because I believe that progressive Christianity, the progressive push, does not have in mind your personal godliness. It doesn't have in mind and it's not going to encourage you to be a man of God. And we are seeing men drop like flies in the ministry, not just teaching elders, but ruling elders. And uh, it is, it's discouraging. And um, I just want to say a few, a few words about this. Brothers, we are children of God first. I'm speaking to my fellow ministers here. We are children of God first and then pastors. We are disciples first and then disciple makers. We are sheep first and then shepherds. We are members of the household of God first and then stewards 
of that household. We are citizens of God's kingdom first and then ambassadors. We as as 21st century reformed ministers need to walk with God first before we lead and instruct others uh, to do uh, the same. Um, and this is something I want, I want you to hear, brothers, and I, I speak to you as a fellow sinner who is uh, saved by grace, and I wish I had time to share my testimony with you. Uh, I, I want you to understand that we are in this together no matter what side of arguments we're on within the PCA, uh, we must all be on the same page when it comes to walking with God. And here's, here's something I want you to get. The Lord wants our hearts and our lives before he wants our ministry and our service. He wants your heart, brother, and your life before he wants your ministry and your service. And by the way, he wants our heart and our lives before he wants us to get in the fray and to battle for ideas and doctrines within our own uh, denomination. Uh, ministry and service are often, sadly, divorced from a sincere walk with God. And this runs against the grain of Scripture. It sows the poisonous seeds of duplicity in our hearts, seeds which eventually grow into an assorted display of ministerial infidelities. It seems that hardly a month goes by now where I'm not hearing about yet another minister who has been caught up in a secret lifestyle uh, of sin. The Lord wants his minister's hearts. He wants our hearts. He wants all of us in this room to walk with him in sincere, sincere piety. I know I probably share the story of some of you who were converted a little bit later, maybe not in your childhood, and I had such uh, an extraordinary life change because I was living in such sin uh, at, at Clemson. Um, uh, and when the Lord saved me, it was so new, so fresh, so glorious. And I remember just longing to spend time with Christ, just wanting to be with him and to be near him and to, uh, to learn about him and to grow in him. And, uh, you know, sometimes that can wane in the Christian life. Calvin, in his seal, he portrayed in this seal of his what ought to be true of all of us. It's the seal portrayed as an open hand holding a heart. My heart I offer to you, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. Do we wake up every day? Now we know we don't. We know we ought to, by God's grace. We know we should wake up every day and say, Lord, here's my heart. I'm not going to give it to secret sin. I'm not going to give it over to these things which displease you. I want to give it to you. Um, so as pastors and as some of our future pastors in this room, uh, we want like Calvin, to offer up our hearts to him promptly and, and sincerely. These are essential to a faithful ministry. Uh, Paul exhorted Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16 to keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. It's not, it's not by mistake here, uh, the way that this is ordered. Keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. 
Have you ever noticed when you look back over church history that it's oftentimes the life and the lack of piety that actually informs the theology? So a person, in order to psychologically deal with the secret sin in their life, they begin to have a theology that conforms to their life rather than a life which conforms to a godly theology. Uh, Acts 20, 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he ordained with his own blood. We cannot, brothers, stop paying attention to our own souls. Do not think, let us not think, that somehow raising the banner for whatever side of things you are on in the PCA. And by the way, I want, to, I want to tell you that when I walk down the hall and I embrace my dear brothers, Erwin uh, Ince and Scott Sauls and, and, and uh, Doug Servin, who I prayed with yesterday, when I walk down the hall and I see these guys and we embrace and we ask about each other's family, I do not see them as on another side. I do not see that. I see them as brothers in Christ with whom I have disagreements. But what I, know, what I know for sure is that we all need to remember that holding up a banner for a certain side of things does not exclude you from needing to walk with God in personal piety and godliness. And sometimes we get that confused. You think, well, I'm, 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 I'm holding up the banner. I'm, I'm leading the charge. I'm doing this and that. But, you know, the walk with God gets marginalized. Uh, there is no, there's no replacement. There's nothing we can do to replace this reality. And it's a sobering thought, isn't it? That over the course of the many general assemblies, we can think back over the last 10 or 15 years and think of men who sat in the worship services, who sat in seminars like this, and... Uh, and no longer are because they have fallen into sin. They have allowed their lives to drift. They've drifted away from a strong walk with God. Some, some in this room right now perhaps could be described as a man headed for disaster. And my encouragement to you, even as we talk about progressive Christianity, even as we talk about some of the, the ideas that are important to us, the doctrines that are important to us, that we uh, want to make a case for and to make a persuasive case for in the life of the church. Just remember this, brothers. There are many subtle ways and causes that uh, Satan is tempting us and drawing us away from Christ. And it's not just the conservatives. It's not just the progressives, as it were. It's all of us have this temptation before us and men in our, on our own and with our own positions are falling into these these sins and so as I as I close here and hand it over to Harry I just want to say this progressive Christianity progressive Christianity does not encourage piety because its ultimate aim is to take social act action and to fix the culture. The ultimate aim, I would argue, uh, is not the glory of God. Uh, the ultimate aim of a hardcore progressive Christianity is not our personal piety and our godliness. And so we need to be careful 
that we, and, and, and then, uh, like I just said, be careful that you don't allow some of the idols that are true to, to whatever tradition, uh, whatever stream you see yourself in, be careful of those idols because one of the most uh, celebrated reformed ministers uh, many years ago, it's public knowledge, um, he was writing for all the major publications, speaking at all the reformed conferences, speaking in the seminaries. He was a man who was heralded as one of our great reformed preachers uh, from, from Scotland. And uh, it turns out uh, that he had uh, a, a secret life going for many years. And incredibly, brothers, he was able to sustain a ministry a rigorous, challenging ministry, and he was beloved by so many. And, and his wife asked him, after all this came out, how did you do it? How could you have this life, this public life, and then have this private life, and to do it and, and to fool everybody? He said, I relied on my intellect. Chilling. Brothers, all of you have gifts that God's given to you. Never let the gifts that God's given to you, never let the ministry that the Lord has given to you distract you from Christ, from walking with God in sincerity. May that be your number one priority every day you wake up. I want to be a man of God, a man of piety, a man of prayer, a man full of love for Christ and full of love for my brothers and sisters even those whom I may disagree with. And uh, I, I argue that progressive Christianity is not going to lead us in that way. And we need unity around the truth, and the truth is not found in progressive Christianity. Well, I'm going to hand it over to Harry. Thanks, John. Well, it's good to be with you. If you've got your Bibles, turn to a very familiar text, Matthew 28, and I'll tell you why. Um, so it's uh, uh, grateful that I could be with you. So um, I think John and I are probably, because there's nothing after this, we'll certainly end on time, but because there's nothing after this, we'll hang around for anybody that wants to do any conversation or talk, uh, not just one-on-one, -on -one, but in a group if there's enough to do that. So I've got to go pretty quickly, and uh, let me just cover a couple of things for you. So I'm in uh, Macon, Georgia, and uh, doing a little bit of a study break, and. I, um, because I'm a Westminster graduate and uh, because I love his work, I, um, I, I'm doing a kind of a deep dive in Machen again, and I'm, I'm drawn back to Christianity and liberalism. Of course, the key word in the title of that book is and. Uh, he made the point powerfully that liberalism is not a, that is Christian liberalism or liberal Christianity is not a subset of Christianity, it is an adversary. And he would even make the point it perhaps is the most prolific and powerful adversary. And, uh, and that's what he did and, he's, and he, his prophetic word was uh, that it was going to utterly destroy, it was going to utterly destroy mainline Protestantism. And so, um, uh, and I kept getting drawn back to it in some of the battles I felt that I was fighting inside the church. And, uh, and, I, and I, so I kept being drawn back to it. Yet, at the same time, in conversation, I'm arguing with people. 
uh, the, our problem today is not liberal Christianity. Our problem today is not theological liberalism. There's a couple of, there's a number of guys that have led groups out of the PCA, splintering groups out of the PCA, and um, and they would say uh, it's it's the PCUS all over again. It's the UPUSA all over again. And I would argue back, no, I, I'm, we're not ordaining anybody that's denying the virgin birth, the resurrection, the uh, uh, denying the inerrancy of Scripture. We're not doing that. Yet. It was still finding resonance with me. It was still resonating with me. Let me put it that way. And so I kept wondering why. <laughs> I'm not a superstitious person, but I went ahead and stayed at 1842, a bed and breakfast in uh, Macon, Georgia, which is where the, the childhood of Machen would be spent every summer because that's where his mother was from, and that was his family home. And I actually would sleep in the, in the same bedroom, and I, I, he would kind of talk to me at night. And... Uh, <laughs> And so, um, so I kept doing this deep dive, and I found a, a, a historian who knew his, uh, his grandfather, who had been the stated clerk for 49 years at First Pres Macon, and an extraordinary guy. Uh, and I was, so I was trying to get a sense of this. So I want to tell you where I landed. And this is where I landed. I, I do not believe that progressive Christianity is embracing. I've said that time and time again. I've been misrepresented on this, so I want it clear. Would you please go tell everybody? I do not believe that progressive Christianity is embracing classic theological liberalism. I don't believe that. But I do believe that progressive Christianity is cut from the same bolt of cloth as liberal Christianity. Liberal Christianity did not begin to destroy the church. That's not, was the, that was not the originating principle. Liberal Christianity began to save the church. That's why we began. We're going to save the church from the, let, let me use their quotes because I got them from Machen in his 1912 lecture on Christianity and culture. Christianity, we're going to save Christianity from the dustbin of history. We're going to save Christianity because if we don't, we're going to lose the next generation. I actually just read a quote today from someone uh, uh, acknowledging our discussions now is that if we take positions that we're taking, then we're going to lose the next generation. And, um, and so uh, that's, that's the motivation. Well, certainly, that gets if people that want people to come to Christ, that gets your attention, doesn't it? And that starts, uh, that starts getting a hold of you to something. It's got texture to it. And uh, so um, we're going to rescue Christianity from the dustbin of history, next generation, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and then, um, and so, that was, so that, is, that was the motivation of liberal Christianity. Now, it actually did the opposite. Uh, and, the, and, the, and the anticipation was that Christianity, through mainline Protestantism, would introduce in the 20th century, what they call, they even started a magazine for it, the Christian century, and a newly defined post-millennial utopia uttered, uh, ushered in by liberal Christianity was the promise. And, um, well, as soon as, now guys, this is just a basic principle. Uh, you, can, you can dismiss it if you want to, but you will live it. All right? And that's this. Whatever your church's functional motivation and mission is will determine your message. If you believe the church, you believe it's church growth, you're going to get a pragmatic gospel. You believe it's self-esteem, yeah, that's the mission of the church, you're going to get a therapeutic gospel. You believe it's success in life, you're going to get a, you're going to get a prosperity gospel. 
Whatever your motivation and your mission, eventually you will have that as your message. And if your motivation is cultural relevance, if your mission is cultural transformation, then what will happen to your message is cultural accommodation. That's what's going to happen. And you will then begin to modify your theology, and the selling point will be this word. Doesn't the Bible teach us contextualization? You have to contextualize into your location and your generation. Absolutely. In the world, but what? Not of the world. And here's, where the, here's, here's the point you've got to always be alert for. Contextualization is speaking in the culture to people in the terms they can understand, not on the terms they demand. That's the issue before us. Cultural accommodation in the name of contextualization begins to redefine the doctrine of the church in order. That's what happened. That's how you got theological liberalism with their motivation, cultural relevance, their human flourishing, they're going to promote uh, this, this utopia. We've got the issue. We, we can solve all these social issues out here and just cut us loose as the church. Just give us the seat at the table. Well, to get the seat at the table required cultural accommodation on the message. So what did the, quote, modern mind that we're going to keep into the church? <clears throat> what do they have problems with? Well, things like uh, virgin birth, inerrancy of scripture, exclusivity of salvation in Christ, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, no problem. We'll just vacuum those out of our confession. Thus, theological liberalism. So what does progressive Christianity do? It's motivation. You hear it time and time again. We're losing our children. We've got to be relevant. You've got to be able to, the 21st century, it, we're, we're doing with the 21st century what they did in the 20th century. So what we're going to do is you have to, we've got to rescue the church from the dustbin of history. The same quotes are being used. I mean, they haven't even come up with new quotes. It's the same ones. And so why? Seek the, seek the city human flourishing, et cetera. Now, by the way, I want to seek the city. I believe in Jeremiah 29. I, I have a little sermon on what it means to seek the city. I'll be, I don't have time to give it to you, uh, but I'll be glad to share it with you. And, um, but, but let me give you the key. Just go read Acts 8.1. When they went, what, what was one of the places they were supposed to go in the Great Commission? Samaria. Acts 8.1, they went to Samaria, city of Samaria. Go see what happens. It says that the last verse that the city rejoiced and was glad. The previous verse, they came and preached Jesus. It is when the church is on mission, on message, and in ministry that cities get glad. Cultural transformation, like church growth, like biblical understanding of yourself and all of that, those are blessed consequences of our ministry. They're not the mission. That's we listen. People get saved. Lives change. Lives change. Marriages change. Businesses change. Neighborhoods change. The culture gets. Uh, let me quote the Bible. The, the culture gets turned upside down, which actually is right side up. But Paul's mission was not cultural transformation. Paul did not leave Antioch to turn the world upside down. That was a consequence. Samaria getting glad was a consequence. That's a consequence. What was his mission? Get sinners transformed. 
Yet sinners turned right side up. That turns the world upside down. You want to see an example? Go read the account of Ephesus. They go in, preach the gospel. Culture gets all discombobulated, and they end up in a riot. Why? Because people get saved. We're not going to do idols anymore. Industry of idolatry goes down. Let's go kill the Christians. And so that's what happens. So we've got to be on mission, on message, and in ministry. That's what we've got to do. And you won't stay on message unless you stay on mission. And you won't stay on mission unless you've got the right motivation. Our motivation is not to be culturally relevant. We are going to speak in the terms the culture can understand, yes. But that's not our mission, to be culturally relevant. That is the culture to tell us what they think the problems are. We, uh, we know what the problems are. The heart of the problem is the problem with the heart. And we've got the solution. And the solution is the life-changing power of Christ where you get a new record, a new heart, a growing new life in Christ, and a renewed mind because of the Word of God and the Spirit of God when you begin to plant churches that do the mission that Christ gives us, which is what? Very simply, make disciples. Make disciples. So now I'm going to make a proposition to you. I'm going to make a prophecy and a proposition. This is not an inspired prophecy. This is not, uh, if this doesn't happen, you can't take stones to my house and kill me. <laughs> but here's my prophecy to you. My prophetic word is that progressive Christianity is about to do to the evangelical church what liberal Christianity did to the mainline church. It's going to empty them. It is going to utterly destroy it. It is not going to make it relevant. It's going to put it on the dustbin of history. Who's in the dustbin of history right now? Mainline churches. Because the movement had the wrong mission, the wrong motivation, the wrong mission, and that ended up with an adulter first an adulterated and eventually an apostate message. Progressive Christianity is cut from the same bolt of cloth. Cultural relevance, mission cultural transformation, then the message is going to be culturally accommodated. And you're supposed to be stewards of Christ's church, and you're supposed to be uh, stewards of a church that's supposed to be a bulwark and a pillar of the truth. And there's no one that likes unity and fellowship more than me. I am one social animal. I love it. <laughs> there's no one who hates uh, conflict more than me. But I know we can't walk together unless we're agreed. And our agreement isn't what does the GRN say or what does this organization say. Our agreement is the word of God as we believe it has been distilled in the confession, which is not inerrant. Anytime you think it needs to be changed, appeal to the scripture, we'll vote on it. But that, that is our distillation, and we have to stay on mission, on message, and in ministry. Is the PCA the only uh, Quote, church in town? Absolutely not. Kingdom of God's ten lanes. We occupy one or two of them. I don't, and as much as I'm grateful for we punch outside of our weight class, I don't think we ought to congratulate ourselves too much. I think it's just, I think we learned to, we can work with others. I, I, I loved when I came into the PCA. It's evangelical breadth and it's reformed depth, and I didn't have to apologize. I'd been in evangelical breadth and I'd been in reformed depth. I'd been five miles wide and one inch deep, and I'd been one inch wide and five miles deep, and I won't tell you the denominations. And I was so glad to be somewhere where we had the opportunity to be five miles wide and five miles deep. 
And that's what I wanted to see, and that's what I'm glad to be a part of. So that's my prophetic word to you, is that the evangelical church is about to empty itself in the name of relevance and cultural transformation, because it's going to adulterate the message, and then it's going to, I mean, I just heard one of their, I've done the work on all of the apologists. I just read one, I've just listened to three sermons of one of their most great communicator, and, uh, and my people, they listen to him, because he'll preach things, and they'll tell me, you need to listen to this, Pastor. And uh, so I am always concerned about it. I just, I just told him, I love one, one of his recommendations. We won't be able to reach the next generation if we stay tethered to the Old Testament. Boy, that's a wonderful hermeneutic. Um, I, I just wish somebody had told Jesus, quit quoting the Old Testament. Um, so... Um, so anyway, uh, I, let me just go ahead and give you this. I, I was asking myself, why does a revoice side B theology that um, eventually, as you work your way through it, um, I believe eviscerates definitive sanctification, def definitive sanctification, progressive sanctification, and regeneration. So it's a gospel issue for me. That's a first order issue. It's not, it's not, uh, it's not, um, it's not, uh, it's not the, uh, the virgin birth. It, these are other issues. It's not the supremacy and inerrancy of Scripture, liberal theology. It's the supremacy and sufficiency of Scripture. That's what we're addressing now. These are first-order issues that these things bring. Now, I know I gave it a listen. Nobody, I, I was criticized because I didn't come right out in knee-jerk response to Revoice. I, I wanted to hear it. Number one, we have a ministry to homosexuals at Briarwood. Uh, number two, I want it to be better. Number three, they may have something to say I need to hear. So I gave it time to listen to my way through it. I understand why it gets a hearing. My question then, why, when we see the inadequacies, does it keep traction? And when I began to deal with, with um, I began to deal with, issues like racism, and I'm given tools that were written anti-God, anti-Christian, anti-gospel, who turned repentance into penance, no reconciliation, no renewal, no redemption, uh, in fact, were written so that you don't have that, so that uh, what you actually do is you, 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 uh, you reverse a racism. Why? It, I understand why we read it, because I got three African-American grandchildren. I want to deal with this issue. I want it dealt with right. But so I give it a hearing. I want to see it. And then I'm told it's got meat on the bones. But after I begin to read it, it doesn't have any meat on the bones. It doesn't. Like I said, it's not a hungry man with a bony fish. Let me get a little meat off of it. We're thirsty people. And what, what's being offered to us is like the, the ocean water. <laughs> you look at it and say, man, I'm going to get a drink of water. I'm thirsty. Well, it's going to kill you. That's all right. I'll spit out the salt. You can't spit out the salt. It's in the stew. It's mixed in. And uh, what we have to do when you, and what we have to do is have confidence in the power of the gospel that restores men and women to Christ and then to each other and confronts the sins that are stand in, uh, that stand in abject disobedience to God having made people in the image. In fact, I can't take an instrument. One of my solutions that I share with my grandchildren is, we all come from the same daddy, <laughs> Adam. We got one race with multiple ethnicities. 
And it's absolutely stupid for us to make these distinctions and these arrogant, uh, these arrogant declarations that are built around our ethnicities. And then here's what the gospel does for us. So I, my question is, why did it keep traction? And I realize because we want to be culturally uh, acceptable. And uh, the culture says, if you don't accept this and you're not there, then you hate, uh, you hate others. So, uh, I, I'm, so I just want to argue with you, argue for you. I want to argue this for you, that progressive Christianity takes some of the issues and that gives it traction. Take a look at what it's offering. You ought to dismiss it. I'm trying to write the book that John said needs to be written. I'm talking with a couple of publishers right now. I believe another one. My elders have asked me to preach on it, so I'm preaching on Sunday night. Historic biblical Christianity and contemporary progressive Christianity. And, uh, and I believe these things need to be dealt with because I believe it's going to destroy the evangelical church, and I don't want it to maintain any traction in the PCA at all. One of the things that it does, and please remember, this is one of the reasons it's hard. Another thing that progressive Christianity does, that liberal Christianity does, is that it, um, is that it, uh, uh, it uses our terms, but not our dictionary. We got the same glossary, but not the same dictionary. And um, like missional, don't get up and leave. I love the word missional. I love it. Historically, it means the lifestyle of people that are surrendered to and sold out to the mission. The only time the word missional is not a good word is if you've got the wrong mission. See, the, the issue is we have to understand we have to define the terms from God's word. That's what we have to do. And when they're not defined by God's word, you've got to be alert to it. So can I finish with this? Here, we're done. The church's mission is narrow. Matthew 28, go make disciples. That's our mission. Some of you heard my sermon. <laughs> I mean, when I grew up, the number one word in that, in that verse in the Christian Missionary Alliance was go. Go, 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 go. Take, go out of God, you got deep. Go out of good, you got odd. Go out of gospel, you got spell. You got to go, 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 go. And that's, I, but don't ever let anybody tell you that a 14-year-old can't remember your outline. I still remember that outline. But then I go to Westminster, I learn Greek, I find out, no, it's make disciples. There's the imperative with three uh, modifying participles. And so, so and, but, but it became so liberating to understand, this is what we do. We make disciples. We have a narrow mission and a comprehensive message, a gospel-saturated whole counsel of God, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So we've got a narrow message, I mean, a narrow mission, a comprehensive message. And then the disciples, what do we do? We send them out into the world, discipled and being discipled and making disciples. And they have a broad mission, salt of the earth, light of the world, love, mercy, do biblical justice, not the... Um, sociologically defined social justice. Do biblical justice. Love mercy. Do justice. Walk humbly with God.
When you came to Christ, you got a new record, you got a new heart, you did not get a new mind. But in discipleship, you get the mind renewed, motivated by the gospel, which is the foundation, the formation, and the motivation of the Christian life, and then taking over all of life so that whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, we're going to teach you how to do it all to the glory of God. And that in all things, Christ might have preeminence. The way your husband, the way your wife, the way you parent, the way you live, the way your employer, the way you're an employee. We're turning you out salt and light. So we have to stay on our mission, on our message to turn out Christians who have the broad mission. And, uh, and apply the message comprehensively in every area of life. That's what we do. We're not the state. We're not the family. We turn out Christians that go to the state, go to business, go to the media, go to the celebrity culture, go to academia. We turn them out and send them in. That's what we do. And so our job, we will, we will see cultures transformed, but that's not our mission. Our mission has been given to us, make disciples. Our message is comprehensive. And the reason we know it's going to be successful is because Jesus says, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. Would you allow me just one illustration? I got a phone call. The commissioner of penitentiaries in the state of Alabama. He says, Harry, would you in Briarwood, he said, I'm gonna take you to Bloody Bib. I'm gonna take you there, walk through the dorm, Guys are walking around with needles in their arm. Um, three gangs, Hispanic, black, white, constantly. They call it bloody bib. There's, you know, homicide every week. Guards, inmates, it's all over the place. Pornography. Sheets, pardon me, I'm just going to be blunt with you. Sheets pulled down over double beds sexual perversion going on between the sheets, middle of the day, lethal weapons everywhere. He said, we got to do something about it. And uh, he said, we want y'all to go in. I said, Commissioner, I'll go anywhere and preach the gospel. It gets me in trouble all the time. But if it, somebody let me preach the gospel, I, I'm, my, I, I told Jim Kennedy years ago, it's not E-E, it's E-E-E-E-E-E-E. Everybody evangelizing everybody everywhere every day. And that's what I believe. And uh, so I'll be glad to go in there and evangelize. But I said, we don't know racial reconciliation, drug issues, sex. Uh, I said, we're not. He said, I don't, I don't, I'm not asking you because you're an expert. I want you all to go in there, and I want you to do what you did for me in the 1980s when I came to Christ. That's what I want you to do. I want Briarwood to be Briarwood. I said, well, we'll take a shot at that. So we went and we got a church there. It's called Church Behind the Wire. Um, and we've got, um, and we got a seminary there. And uh, my wife is here. I would have no problem her standing next to me walking through that door right now. None. They've raided it for the last two and a half years. They found no lethal weapons, no pornography, no sex toys. None of those things are there. They don't see any of it. And uh, you go in there, black, white. I said one of my favorite times, I went to teach one class, and there's a black guy and a white guy sitting in front of me. The white guy's got tattoos all up and down here. The black guy, he's got his share of tattoos. They're sitting there listening to me, writing notes. And um, the white guy just graduated. His, thesis, his um, thesis was Bob Inc. and his ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
You ought to heard it. You ought to read it. Now, the, the guy, the white guy, tattoos, he was head of the Aryan Society of Alabama. Black guy was head of a militant group out of Montgomery. They're best friends. When I finish, they hug each other. We pray together. You go through the dormitory, there's no division. They're sitting around talking, ministering. They built their own library. They built a prayer chapel. That's what they've done. Uh, we've graduated two groups. We've now started a, a, um, uh, a program. It's called Jumpstart. Do you know what recidivism is in the state of Alabama? 87%. Jumpstart? 6%. We did not go in with drug rehabilitation. We did not go in with racial reconciliation. We were not experts in those things. We, didn't we just went in with the Bible, with prayer, and the means of grace, evangelism, discipleship, worship. That's all we did. And that's what transformed that, that entire dorm. And now I've got letters everywhere. Would you come to this prison? Would you come to that prison? Would you go here? Would you go there? See, that's what I'm trying to tell you. It is when we do our mission with our message, then what you want to happen in the culture happens. But if you get off mission, then you will adulterate and apostatize the, uh, the message. And that's why I believe progressive Christianity is not to be nuanced. We don't need any ambiguity. We need to be abundantly clear. Satan has three strategies. Intimidation to silence us. Imitation to weaken us. And infiltration to get us off mission and off message. So here, Paul, when I leave, Satan is coming in. It's not always wolves in sheep's clothing. In fact, with progressive Christianity, it's mostly sheep with wolf's clothing. We still got to get rid of the wolf's clothing. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.